Good morning. It is Kale and Company live right here on WKXL NHTalkRadio.com. Great to have you here on a Wednesday morning at 1450 on the AM dial, 103.9 FM in the Capital Region, 101.9 FM in Manchester and well beyond the Queen City and around the world, around the clock at NHTalkRadio.com. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Northeast Delta Dental with individual and family plans designed to fit your lifestyle you can learn more and find your plan at DeltaDentalCoversMe.com. Guess one of the big stories locally yesterday was an agreement to sell the New Hampshire Fisher Cats. That was announced yesterday. I'm assuming it has been in the works for quite some time. The minor league baseball team, which is the double-A affiliate of the Toronto Blue Jays, has been sold to Diamond Baseball Holdings. And in a statement, a New Hampshire native Tom Sylvia, one of the current owners of the Fisher Cats, thanked the city of Manchester, its mayor, and the Blue Jays for their support of the sale. And quoting Mr. Sylvia here, which will preserve minor league baseball and the minor league baseball experience in Manchester for the next generation. So not to worry, not to worry because the Fisher Cats are not going anywhere. They will be uh, continuing to play at Delta Dental Stadium in Manchester and will continue as the AA affiliate of the Blue Jays. Team officials said all staff will remain in place under the existing leadership of CEO Rick Brenner and General Manager Michael Nice. So uh, what is Diamond Baseball Holdings all about? Well, they already own many other minor league teams, including Portland Sea Dogs, the AA affiliate of the Boston Red Sox, and the Salem Red Sox, the single-A affiliate for Boston, the ownership group on Tuesday also agreed to acquire the Worcester Red Sox, or the Woo Sox, which is the Red Sox AAA affiliate in Worcester, Massachusetts. So, at any rate, the Fisher Cats will change hands. They will now be uh, under the guise of another uh, corporation. But they will continue to be. Diamond Baseball Holdings, again, is the name of the group that bought them. They will still be the AA affiliate of the Blue Jays. And if you didn't hear me say this this morning and didn't read it in the newspaper today, uh, you would probably never know the difference. Uh, because I think things are going to run pretty much uh, as they have since the uh, Fisher Cats got here in uh, 2004. They've been uh, Great uh, summer, spring, summer uh, entertainment for uh, not only the uh, the city of Manchester, but the entire state of New Hampshire and the region, uh, for that matter. I mean, a lot of people come from uh, Maine, Vermont, Massachusetts, and, uh, and other states to uh, watch the Fisher Cats in action at Delta Dental Stadium. And you will be able to do that uh, for years and years to come. So uh, looking forward to uh, the new ownership group. And, uh, and uh, yeah, they might make a few changes, tinker with things uh, here and there. But, uh, you know, nothing that uh, is, is going to uh, make 
you know, uh, a, a difference to most people. Uh, if, if anything, they, they will uh, maybe improve some of the amenities at uh, Northeast. I, I keep calling it Northeast Delta Dental Stadium. It's Delta Dental Stadium. You can throw in the Northeast if you want, but uh, technically it is Delta Dental uh, Stadium. Of course, that not the only uh, baseball news that broke on Tuesday. The Red Sox and the Yankees got together on a deal. The Yankees searched for a left-handed bat, drew them into enemy territory as they acquired uh, outfielder Alex Verdugo from the Red Sox Tuesday. A rare and very rare swap between the historic rivals. But I guess when both teams are struggling, they have to resort to these measures, right? I mean, the Red Sox really struggled in 2023. The Yankees struggled too. Uh, And now they have Alex Verdugo. He heads to the Bronx in exchange for three right-handed pitchers that uh, nobody, unless you're a baseball sabermetrician, has heard of. Uh, Richard Fitz, who was the Yankees' number 12 pitching prospect, Greg Weissert, and Nicholas Judice. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. The Yankees' move for Verdugo does not take them out of the running for a potential Juan Soto swap or maybe a Cody Bellinger signing. Uh, General Manager Brian Cashman has stated that he's searching for two outfielders to join Aaron Judge, preferably left-handed hitters, which Verdugo is. But there has been speculation There has been speculation that Verdugo could be used in a a trade for Juan Soto with the San Diego Padres. As part of a trade, I mean, uh, you would never get Juan Soto away from San Diego for just Alex Verdugo. I mean, I'm not knocking Doogie, but uh, there aren't too many Juan Sotos out there. Uh, So he would have to be combined with uh, another player or two anyway uh, for the San Diego Padres to agree with the trade uh, with the New York Yankees. So Verdugo, seven years in the big leagues with the Red Sox from 2020 to 23. Of course, he came over in the Mookie Betts deal uh, from the Dodgers, highly controversial deal that Sadly, uh, it should have never happened. Uh, Mookie Betts should have been a member of the Red Sox for life. It didn't work out that way. Uh, Red Sox got uh, uh, Verdugo, Connor Wong, and Jeter Downs in that trade. And now only Connor Wong is part of the Red Sox organization from uh, the three players they got in exchange uh, for the great future Hall of Famer, uh, Mookie Betts. So we shall see. Uh, Verdugo was a gold glove finalist. I mean, he was a very good outfielder. Played uh, most of the time in right field. Uh, Has played left field and center as well. So we'll see if he has a future with the Yankees or a future with another ball club. Uh, He's a perfect fit, really, 
for Yankee Stadium. A left-handed batter and a short right field porch at Yankee Stadium. He would be perfect. But would I rather have Juan Soto as my left-handed batter, one of them in the lineup, than Alex Verdugo? Yeah, of course. Of course I would. And so would the Yankees. So we'll see what, uh, what plays out. Of course, Verdugo ran into a little bit of, uh, you know, disfavor with manager Alex Cora. You might remember uh, that he was benched for lack of hustle, according to Cora. And also, he had to uh, sit for a game or, or two uh, because he arrived late to the ballpark for an afternoon game uh, in the 2023 season. Now, when I say late, when I say late, he was there in the clubhouse like two hours before game time. But most ballplayers show up uh, five to six hours before the actual start time of the games to get you know, treatment for injuries, uh, to go over pitchers uh, that are, are they are going to face that particular day from meetings, uh, just, just to hang out. It's, it's mostly hanging out. I mean, there's, there's, you know, only enough meetings you can have and only enough treatment you can have. So, you know, you might be busy uh, in those six hours before the game. You might be busy for, oh, let's say an hour. <laughs> and the rest of it is just hanging out with your buddies. But nonetheless, there is a, is a protocol and players are supposed to be there four to five hours before every game. Dustin Pedroia was very famous when he was with the Red Sox for getting to the ballpark. You know, in some cases, I mean, no, no exaggeration. Pedroia would get there sometimes 12 hours before the start of the game. Uh, and love to hang out with uh, then-manager uh, Terry Francona and play some cribbage. So that's what they did for most of the time. They weren't going over, you know, other opposing hitters, opposing pitchers. They weren't getting treatment. They were playing cribbage. Guys love to hang out in the, in the clubhouse and uh, play cards or cribbage or, or whatever. Hey, that's it. That's their domain. That is their domain. But uh, Doogie showed up late, maybe one or two times. And by late, I mean not five hours before the game. Instead, maybe two. So, and uh, fell into the disfavor of Alex Cora, so it was no surprise that Alex Verdugo was dealt in the offseason, which took place yesterday, to the New York Yankees. But the question is, will he ever play a game as a member of the New York Yankees? We shall see. We'll take a break. We have more coming up, including a guest today who wrote a terrific book. If you like to talk about uh, 60s and 70s football, George Allen is the focus of the book. George Allen, A Football Life. And we'll talk about that in about uh, 15 minutes from now on the show with Mike Richmond, the author of the book, right here. Kale and Company Live, WKXL, NHTalkRadio.com. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental, and we will be right back. Kale and Company live right here on WKXL, NHTalkRadio.com. Thank you for being with us on this Wednesday. 
And we are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. A reminder, tomorrow we will be joined in the uh, first part of the program by former Red Sox great Red Sox Hall of Famer Rico Petroselli. Rico will join us to talk uh, baseball and uh, other things as well. He's been uh, he's been a little bit involved in the political scene uh, for several years, a great supporter of uh, uh, Don Bolduck when he was uh, running for office. And now uh, Rico is uh, supporting uh, Kelly Ayotte to be the next governor of the uh, state of New Hampshire. So we'll talk a little bit about that, but mostly about baseball. And uh, because there's never any lack of baseball talk, right? (laughs) At least for some of us, anyway. Uh, I wonder if uh, many of you had the chance to see former President Trump last night in a town hall from Davenport, Iowa. First caucus state coming up in uh, January. He was there on uh, Fox News with Sean Hannity. And uh, Fox reported earlier uh, in the day that as vice president, well, first of all, it, let, let's it just mention what came out last night. I was watching the ABC News on WMUR at uh, 630. And uh, David Muir says, we have breaking news, breaking news on uh, President Biden, what his plans are. And he was in Boston yesterday, President Biden. And he said that if Donald Trump wasn't running for president and Trump, the likely, likely anyway, uh, Republican uh, presidential nominee, as it stands right now anyway, if Trump wasn't running for president, he wouldn't be running. That's what Biden said yesterday in Boston, pretty much in a nutshell is what he indicated, that let's say if it was Nikki Haley or uh, Chris Christie or Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, he wouldn't run. But since it's Trump, he's running. Since it's Trump, Biden will run. Although, uh, during the town hall last night, uh, Sean Hannity asked former President Trump if he thought, in fact, that Biden would be the nominee Next November, 11 months from now. And uh, Trump indicated that he felt something's going to happen and he won't be. That Joe Biden will not be the standard bearer for the uh, Democrat Party. We will see. Uh, I do know what Fox News reported yesterday. As vice president, Joe Biden used email aliases and private email addresses to communicate with son Hunter Biden and Hunter's business associates hundreds of times, according to new records released by the House Ways and Means Committee. The committee obtained uh, uh, metadata from IRS whistleblowers Gary Shapley and Joseph Ziegler that reveals Joe Biden used alias email accounts 327 times during a nine-year period from 2010 to 2019 to correspond with Sun Hunter and one of Hunter's key business associates, Eric Sherwin, among others. The majority of the email traffic took place while Biden was vice president, vice president of Barack Obama. The committee says 54 
of the emails were exclusively between Joe Biden and Sherwin, who the committee describes as the architect of the Biden family's shell. That's with a lowercase s, not like shell oil. Biden's shell companies, the companies he kept or they kept undercover, allegedly. The email aliases used were Robinware456, Robinware456, JRBware, and Robert L. Peters. Those were the aliases used uh, in the emails, allegedly, by Vice President Biden at the time. Of course, uh, his middle name is Robinette. So that's why Robinware uh, was used anyway. Uh, earlier this year, House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer, the Republican from Kentucky, revealed the existence of Biden's email aliases. Uh, after Comer's release of those aliases, Fox News Digital learned the whistleblowers who are still employed as IRS investigators ran a search for the Biden email aliases and mail exchanges with Hunter Biden and Eric Sherwin. That, uh, that search led to the revelation of the 327 exchanges. The whistleblowers turned over the results of the search to the committee after a closed-door meeting Tuesday, and the committee released the information, the uh, data or data, shows direct emails between Sherwin and Vice President Biden increased during times when the vice president traveled to Ukraine. The committee said the data shows Joe Biden and Sherwin exchanged five emails in June 2014 before the vice president's trip to Ukraine that month. After that trip and before Biden's November 2014 trip back to Ukraine, he and Sherwin emailed 27 times. Hunter Biden had joined the uh, board of Ukrainian natural gas firm Burisma Holdings in April of 2014. Now, Biden has acknowledged, and this is on videotape, and I, I have seen it dozens of times. Uh, Biden has acknowledged that uh, when he was vice president, he successfully pressured Ukraine to fire Ukrainian prosecutor Viktor Shokin. At the time, Shokin was investigating Burisma Holdings. During the same period, Hunter Biden held a highly lucrative role on the board, receiving thousands of dollars per month. At the time, the vice president, Joe Biden, threatened to withhold a billion dollars of critical U.S. aid if Shokin was not fired. Biden allies maintain the vice president pushed for Shokin's firing uh, due to concerns the Ukrainian prosecutor went easy on corruption and say his firing was policy position of the U.S. and international, the international community. But uh, at any rate, uh, the uh, person, Jason Smith, House Ways and Means Committee Chairman Jason Smith, who is leading the impeachment inquiry against President Biden alongside House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan of Ohio and House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer of Kentucky, the chairman 
are investigating any foreign money received by the Biden family, whether President Biden was involved in his family's foreign business dealings and steps allegedly taken by the Biden administration to slow, hamper or otherwise impede the criminal investigation into the president's son, Hunter Biden, which involves funds received by the Biden family from foreign sources. Uh, we'll, we'll be hearing about this as it plays out for weeks and months. And um, I don't know if anything will ever come of it, but uh, Donald Trump said last night that he does not believe that Joe Biden will be the, uh, the standard bearer for the Democratic Party when the election is held next November. Of course, Biden didn't even bother to register for the New Hampshire primary in January. He thinks he's got this thing locked up. He thinks he has that nomination locked up. Well, just another example of the Biden arrogance not not registering, not not registering for the New Hampshire prize. How simple is that? You don't even have to show up. You can send a surrogate, send in your money, sign up. But he didn't even do that. So well, it shouldn't be too surprising. In the next portion of the show, if you like football, if you like some great stories uh, from the past, from the National Football League, new book is out called George Allen. A football life and what a football life it was. The book is by Mike Richmond. And we will be chatting with Mike right after these words. Kale and Company live right here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Don't you dare touch that dial. Welcome back. It is Kale and Company live here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental, and we are very pleased to welcome to the program today, Mike Richmond. Mike, good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Well, it is our pleasure. Mike is an author and journalist. He's covered sports for more than a quarter of a century. The author of uh, Washington Football's uh, Washington Redskins, I say, Football Vault, the history of a proud franchise, the Redskins Encyclopedia, and Joe Gibbs, an enduring legacy. And his latest book is George Allen. A Football Life, a foreword by uh, former NFL coach uh, Dick Vermeil as well. And Mike, many of our listeners today uh, might not be familiar with the, the name George Allen, and that is a shame because uh, he was one of the great innovators of all time in the NFL, also one of the great winners in league history. Uh, why did you decide to write this book? Sure, well... Let's start from uh, when I was very young. I was I was ten years old when George Allen came to Washington in 1971, and I just became hooked on those those Redskins teams. Allen turned that that whole franchise around. The Redskins hadn't had a um, a playoff team since 1945, so quarter century, and it was just such enthusiasm in the nation's capital. And uh, you know, I be, I became uh, consumed by it and. Uh, I, so huge Redskins fan, uh, loved George Allen, loved the players, uh, and also I, uh, later on in my life, I chose journalism as a career, I wrote for my high school newspaper, 
college newspaper, and I've worked for various journalistic organizations. So I put all the pieces together, my love for that particular Redskins team and uh, and my, my journalism experience. Now, at the same time, uh, George Allen is well-deserving of a definitive biography, and I thought I was the absolute person to do that. I mean, he's uh, got a seven twelve winning percentage, all-time winning percentage for coaches with at least 100 career victories. He's number three all-time in that category behind John Madden and Vince Lombardi. He's in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Like you said, he was an innovator in the game. I mean, he defensive special teams, I mean, those were his, uh, you know, those were the, the primary areas of the game where he introduced uh, uh, new ideas that are really part of the game today. Defense, he had the five-man, six-man defensive backs, uh, nickel and dime defenses, respectively. That's part of the game today. Also, um, special teams, he was the first true coach to, uh, or, or he hired Dick Vermeil in 1969, coach, of course, who wrote the forward for my book. Vermeil was his special teams coach. He was one of the first two in the league. Marv Levy was hired the same year by the Eagles as their special teams coach. There were other things Allen did with special teams that uh, made him stand out from his peers. So, yeah, he was well-deserving of a, uh, of a biography, and I thought I was the person to do that. Well, absolutely, and uh, it is uh, terrific. And uh, during his Hall of Fame career, uh, George Allen always favored veteran players over over younger players, and and traded away many many draft picks over the years. Oh, absolutely right. He veterans. I mean, he, he thought that they wouldn't make the mental mistakes on the field that uh, that rookies would make. So he really did favor them, and. Uh, he made some 50 trades while he was the head coach of the Rams in the 1960s. Uh, and then when when he was with the Redskins, I mean, he was trading away draft picks like they were a deck of cards. I mean, he really couldn't, uh, he couldn't stand rookies. And he thought better. See, I think it was the the desire in him to, that immediacy to win. Because I actually asked Bruce Allen this question, you know, why did your father favor veterans so much when he was a head coach? Now, paradoxically, he he was he had a, such a keen eye for rookie talent when he was the head talent scout of the Chicago Bears from 1959 to 1965. He led the drafting of players like Mike Ditka uh, in 1961, uh, Sayers and Butkus in 65, Ronnie Bull, who was another great player. He was a yep. uh, NFL Rookie of the Year in 1962. Allen led the drafting of all those guys, so he had this great eye for rookie talent. But then when he became a head coach, he really, really favored veterans. And I asked Bruce Allen that, and he said it was that, that immediacy to win because when Allen became a head coach for the first time in 1966, uh, that pressure was sort of building on NFL head coaches at the time. To, you know, It wasn't like one year and you're done like, did it, like it is today. But they were starting to feel it, and Allen, he, he wanted to win right away, and he thought veteran players would be, would be the way to do it. And uh, he was right in most cases. And, and let's go back to the beginning of uh, George Allen's uh, coaching career and, and how that all began. Yeah, sure. Well, he was first a college coach. He got his first college coaching job at Morningside in Iowa in 1948. He coached there for three seasons. And then he coached for six more years at Whittier in the Los Angeles area. So those were his two college coaching stints. Uh, he had, after Whittier, 
he was an assistant for one year with the Los Angeles Rams under Sid Gilman. He knew Gilman through, uh, during his time at Whittier, uh, he would go to Gilman's summer training camps in California. So Gilman brought him on as an assistant, but then uh, fired him after the 57 season. He was out of work for uh, a few months, but he was selling weighted footballs as one of one of his business endeavors. So he made his way into the Chicago Bears training camp, and he he met Hallis. And Hallis actually brought him on as a spy. The Bears had two late-season games against the Rams in 1958. So Hallis, knowing that Allen had been with the Rams in 57, he brought him on as a spy for those two games in, uh, late in the 58 season. And then he hired Allen as the head talent scout in January of 1959. That's when he, that was Allen's first, our first uh, go around with, with the, um, with the Bears at that point. Then he was elevated to a defensive coordinator in January of 63. He replaced Clark Shaughnessy, the great Clark Shaughnessy, who was really the, um, the, the uh, innovator in the T formation decades prior. But, um, Allen replaced him as the defensive coordinator in 63. And Allen was actually the architect that, I mean, I spoke to a number, I was able to catch up with a number of his Bears players from that 63 team, and they all said that Allen deserves full credit for that that Bears team winning the NFL championship in 63. That team had such a ferocious defense. It's even compared today to the 85 Bears defense that won that, well, that led the way for them, for the Bears to win that Super Bowl in 85. Well, you know, you mentioned the, uh, the the spying aspect of it. So there was there was Spygate even before Bill Belichick came along, folks, in the in the National Football League. So so there you go. Uh, tell us about uh, you know you mentioned the fact that he was hired by Papa Bear George Hallis, but but then uh, after after a few years there was uh, there was a legendary feud uh, that persisted uh, between the Georges, uh, Allen and Hallis. What how did that come about? Yeah, sure. So, after the 63 championship game, Allen was a a hot name on the coaching market. I mean, he was, there were several teams that were interested in, in him at that time. I mean, and why not? I mean, he was getting so much credit for that, that championship win. And so, a few years went by, and Allen decided to stay with the Bears. He thought that Hallis was going to step down at some point, uh, whether it was that season or in a season or two, sometime in the mid-60s, well, Hallis decided not to relinquish his head coaching duties. I mean, he was still a owner of the team, but he kept kept on with that coaching. So Allen was getting antsy. I mean, he wanted his head coaching opportunity. So the job came open with the Los Angeles Rams, and Allen, Allen took the opportunity. He was hired by Dan Reeves, the Rams owner. Well, at the same time, Hallis became really angry at it. He thought that Allen had gone behind his back, even though Allen did inform Hallis in a letter that he was going to accept that job. Hallis, he, he basically concocted the story uh, that Allen had you know, gone behind his back. And so Hallis actually filed a lawsuit. He, he sued Allen for a breach of contract because there was a clause in Allen's contract where it, it was written that Allen's knowledge of what he knew of the Bears was in a was proprietary in a way, and so Hallis took him to court, uh, Cook County Circuit Court in the Chicago area, and actually won that case. The judge ruled in favor of Hallis, but and which would have meant uh, Allen would would have had to stay with the Bears. But 
Palace got up at the end of the case. He said, listen, uh, you know, case is over. I'm glad I won. Now George Allen is free to go wherever he wants. So Palace won the case on principle, which is really all he wanted. Yeah. But it was really, it made him look like a petulant child anyway. I mean, he was just, <laughs> just a crybaby. You've got to let these assistant coaches go when they have head coaching opportunities. And there had been an incident in the early 50s where Palace had a stiff on one of his assistants from going to another team, and it actually was successful. The assistant was not able to go. So this was kind of a replay of that. But Allen, in the end, uh, was able to leave and take the head coaching job of the L.A. Rams. So that's how that whole that whole situation played out. And then in later years, I mean, Allen's just, he held a lifelong grudge against Allen. And when that job came open after the 81 season, that head coaching job with the Bears, Allen wrote a few letters to Palace saying he was very interested. He, he hoped that Palace would consider him for the opportunity, but Palace refused to. And that's all. I mean, I explained that entirely in my book. Right. And uh, it's just that Palace would not let go of the, the grudge that he held against George Allen. He never got rid of that grudge, uh, for sure. Uh, our guest is Mike Richmond, the book George Allen, A Football Life. Mike, can you stay with us for a couple of minutes? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. I'd love to. And we'll talk about uh, Allen's tenure with uh, the Rams and how eccentric an individual that uh, George Allen was in, in many ways. When we continue right here with Mike Richmond on Kale & Company Live, WKXL, NHTalkRadio.com, presented by Northeast Delta Delta. Stay with us. Welcome back. Kale and Company live on WKXL, NHTalkRadio.com. Our guest, Mike Richmond, and the new book is George Allen, A Football Life. And uh, what a life uh, it was. Uh, Allen uh, coached the Chicago uh, Bears. I, I should say was an assistant with the Chicago Bears and then uh, went on to be the head coach of the L.A. Rams with their uh, legendary fearsome foursome uh, from 66 to uh, 1970. But uh, as it turned out, Mike, uh, he was actually fired in 1968. And then after a show of support from uh, many of his players, he, he was reinstated. It was one of the surreal moments in George Allen's coaching career. After the 68 season, uh, Dan Reeves, the Rams owner, who just, he came to dislike Allen. He didn't like Allen's big spending ways with veteran players. So based on what we were talking about before, Allen made all these trades for veterans, and pay, he was paying them big bucks to, to come to L.A. So Reeves didn't like that. He didn't appreciate that. Allen had full control of the active roster. Reeves had control of the draft. So that's how that whole, work, that whole thing worked. But so, and Reeves, the, the two also had like totally different personalities. And Reeves was a party guy, he was a drinker, everybody knew that. Allen was just so straight laced. Um, his nickname was uh, the Green Arrow, at least one of them. So the two uh, just, uh, uh, they, they didn't hit it off at all. So after the 68 season, Reeves fired him, and sure enough, Allen called for a press conference at one of the, the uh, ritzy, uh, Los Angeles hotels, and about 20 of his veteran Ram players showed up, including uh, big names, Deacon Jones, Merlin Olson, Roman Gabriel, Ed Metter, uh, defensive back. So they, they basically said, listen, um, uh, Dan Reeves, if you don't rehire George Allen, we're quitting. So several weeks later, Reeves rehired Allen to coach the final two years of his contract at least, 
but um, Reeves also said in the press conference uh, to announce his rehiring that, oh, I didn't, the, the, what the players said didn't influence me, but I'm sure it did in a large way because if they left, the Rams would have another, they would go back to their losing ways, which they were under uh, Allen, under, uh, you know, prior to Allen, they were a, a bad to mediocre team. Yeah, that that is for sure. He he turned that uh, franchise around, and uh, then uh, a stint in in Washington, which uh, was successful. And uh, you know, we talked about his uh, you know, the fact that George Allen was a very eccentric uh, guy. I, I mean, uh, there were so many examples in the book. Uh, one one of them is uh, one of his quirks was to uh, minimize chewing time by consuming soft food so he wouldn't waste time on uh, on eating a meal uh he had to get back to to, to his coaching <laughs> <laughs> that was george allen he wanted to use every waking minute of the day to focus on his coaching and he loved ice cream yeah because it was easy to swallow and he wouldn't have to waste his time chewing <laughs> and that and it, one of his nicknames another nickname was ice cream yeah. And in fact, um, during his days with the Rams, Lee Merriweather, the uh, former Miss America, and uh, later uh, played uh, Catwoman in the Batman movie, right. she made a um, an appearance at the, Rams, at the Rams practice site and brought him a gallon of ice cream. And <laughs> that picture, it was like a photo op. The picture ran in the uh, Los Angeles Times, and uh, it was just so, that was George Allen. He, he had his eccentric ways, and he... You know, there were things that he would do, like he, he once, he was a great motivator, a great motivating coach, and he also uh, was a green belt in karate, so he, he said to his players one night before a uh, before a Cowboys game, the Redskins had an amazing rivalry, fierce rivalry with the Cowboys, he said, listen, uh, I'm going to go out and fight Tom Landry in midfield. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to feed him, I'm going I'm to, uh, uh, you know, I'm gonna kill him in midfield, and so the the players they heard that it was it was a motivational ploy on the part of Allen, and um, uh, but yeah, that, that was George Allen. He he had his ways of uh, uh, whether it was uh, you know, motivational or saving time to focus on coaching, and I mean, and also he was an exercise fanatic. I mean, he would run around the track at Redskins Park. He would run the hills. Uh, he was uh, really big in calisthenics. Uh, he hit the punchy bag. I mean, that, and then later he was the chairman of the President's Council on Physical Fitness yeah. under Ronald Reagan during during Reagan's two terms in the 1980s. So, yeah, that was George Allen. And, of course, uh, he had a well-known friendship with another president, and that was Richard Nixon. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Well, the two first met when, when Allen was coaching at Whittier, and uh, Nixon... Nixon and Allen met at an NCAA banquet in the early 1950s, and and Whittier, that's uh, that was Nixon's alma mater. Right. So he he was is uh, uh, still in Congress, I believe, or he was nearing uh, being selected uh, as Eisenhower's vice president. And um, so anyway, Nixon wanted to meet the coach who was uh, who was coaching the football team at his alma mater. So that's how the first, the two first met at that NCAA banquet, and then they stayed in touch over the years. And when Allen became the Redskins coach in 1971, and Nixon was already in his third year in the White House, their relationship took on a new dimension. And uh, their, you know, as the story goes, Nixon 
called a play <laughs> in the 1971 playoff game when the Redskins played the 49ers. I, that whole story is documented in my book, uh, yeah. how that whole thing happened. It, it's actually Nixon fed him the play. I mean, um, Allen fed, fed Nixon the play. Nixon came to Redskins Park to give the team a pep talk during the 1971 season. The Redskins had gone winless in a three-game stretch uh, around midseason, so Nixon came to Redskins Park to give the team a pep talk, and uh, while he was there, Allen fed him this play that Nixon called it, 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 during that practice. It was an end-around to, to Roy Jefferson. And then later on, as the Redskins approached their playoff game against the 49ers, Nixon called over to Redskins Park. He spoke to Allen. He spoke to quarterback Billy Kilmer. He said, listen, I'd like to see you run that end-around in the playoff game. So toward the end of the first half, the Redskins ran that play. It was like a 10-yard loss. Um, they the, they were very close to the uh, 49ers goal line at the time. It, they the field goal the snap on the field goal attempt was was low and they didn't get the kickoff so they went into halftime with no points off that possession. They were still up ten three of that game, but they lost to the Forty ers So, but I, I interviewed uh, Kilmer about it, and he said that Ted Marchabroda actually sent that play in from the sidelines, but it could have come originally. It could have been originally Nixon's thought. It's, a lot of that is really open to interpretation. But it, people believe, hey, you know, Nixon called it in during the game or he phoned it in from the Oval Office or something like that. But that really didn't happen. Yeah. Well, it was something that did happen was George Allen's pursuit while he was head coach of the Redskins. He wanted to get uh, Andre the Giant, the wrestler, in, in a Redskins uniform. He did, yeah. He was uh, prior to... To, it was in this 75 offseason, and he, one of Allen's assistants spoke to uh, Andre the Giant's uh, manager, who's the, the big guy name uh, over the years in, uh, in wrestling, uh, Ed, um, uh, I, can't, I can't think of his last name. But anyway, the two spoke. One of Allen's assistants uh, spoke to Andre the Giant's agent, and, um, uh, and actually there was a press conference at one of the restaurants here in D.C., and Joe Theismann attended, and... Uh, Andre the Giant was there, but there was a deal was never consummated. Andre the Giant never signed with the Redskins. I, I think it was kind of like a publicity, an off-season publicity stunt in the way, just for Allen to kind of get the word out there about the Redskins. We're talking. This was like July of '75, and training camp hadn't started yet, and so Andre the Giant never signed with the Redskins. And I don't think he could have played football anyway. I mean, he was seven foot four, seven feet four, like more than 400 pounds. Allen wanted him there to to uh, block kicks. And he thought he could just, you know, raise his arm up and he would block kicks. But it, it, nothing ever happened. Uh, Andre the Giant never signed with the Redskins. And uh, he just, he left that press conference and he went off to his, one of his wrestling tournaments in uh, in Scranton, Pennsylvania, I believe. <laughs> so, so more of a publicity stunt on the part of George Allen than anything else. Yeah, he was really yeah. good at that. He was really good at marketing the yeah. name of the Redskins and his teams in general. And this was a way for him to do it. He he just wanted to he wanted to get the name of the team out there in the off season. And uh, uh, yeah, so that was uh, it was one of the ways that George went went about doing that. There were other ways as well. Yeah. 
Well, I'll tell you what, it's, it's a terrific book, Mike, and uh, if, if folks are interested in, in the, you know, really the history of the National Football League, George Allen uh, played a huge part in that, and uh, Mike, congratulations on the book, and uh, thanks for being with us today. The book is George Allen, A Football Life, Mike Richman, R-I-C-H-M-A-N, is the author. Mike, thanks a lot. Great job. Thank you very much. Can I just say, uh, if anyone wants to get an autographed copy of the book, it's available through my website, MikeRichmanJournalist.com. All right. Mike, thanks so much for being with us. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right. Yeah, Mike Richman, R-I-C-H-M-A-N is his uh, last name. George Allen of Football Life. We'll talk a little bit about a baseball life tomorrow. And uh, Rico Petroselli will be with us. And then Tim Lang will be with us as well. State Senator Tim Lang on the program in studio tomorrow. Kale and Company live presented by Northeast Delta Dental. And remember, folks, always look on the bright side of life. Have a great Wednesday, everybody.